Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, journalist and Twitter. So all of us who have been in the news business for any length of time have this kind of love-hate relationship with social media, especially Twitter, which is where a lot of journalists live. On the one hand, there's an argument that it helps raise people's profile, that it gets attention to work that wouldn't normally get attention, that it can find sources. On the other hand, it can be a really toxic place, especially if you're a woman or a journalist of color. And so how do people navigate that? What are newsroom managers doing to help people navigate that? Really happy to be joined today by Jacob Nelson, who's an assistant professor at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. Jacob has written a piece that was in CJR uh, working with the Tau Center here that interviewed about three dozen journalists about their experience with Twitter and about how they, some suggestions they have for solving this problem. Jacob, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I was really interested to read this because I'm one of these people that like cringes every time I open my Twitter app. And I also am like, what am I doing here? Why do I keep doing this over and over again? Um, which was a theme that I read in your interviews with all these people. Tell me what, first off, what were you looking to, to find out? So I had a very general question going into this, which was just how do journalists use Twitter and how do they experience their newsroom manager's attempts to help or hinder their approaches to Twitter? Um, and the motivation for it, unsurprisingly, was with what ha happened to Emily Wilder. Uh, I mean, not that that was the first time that something like that happened, but it just seemed so. Uh, it, it just seemed so obvious that she had been mistreated by the Associated Press. Remind and, us, remind us of that story. Yeah, so Emily Wilder uh, had started as a news associate at the Associated Press, and um, shortly after. Uh, the Associated Press Bureau was bombed. She tweeted something about um, objectivity and basically, you know, it was a critique of objectivity. It did not say anything about Israel and Palestine. It was just, you know, was, was much sort of more theoretical and broader about the state of journalism. And uh, shortly after that, uh, conservatives um, from Stanford, again, I believe that that's her, her alumni, um, uh, so this group called like Stanford Republicans or, you know, Stanford conservatives or something like that. Um, they uh, dug up all of these old tweets from her that weren't even really all that especially uh, damning, but they used it as evidence that she had an anti-Israel bias. She wasn't even covering the Middle East for the Associated Press, but they did such a good job mobilizing right-wing media um, that she was basically became the target of this Twitter mob. And rather than stick by her or help protect her from this abuse that she was inflicted, that, that was inflicted upon her by this right wing mob, Associated Press fired her. And it just seemed so apparent to me and it seemed to many other people within journalism that, that was not the right reaction. Um, and it just made me really curious to know, OK, what are newsrooms responsibilities to their journalists when it comes to using social media and what are their priorities? What are they attempting to accomplish when it comes to telling their journalists how they should and shouldn't use social media. So what was striking about this and what you did, so you interviewed all these people and asked them all this question, and it sort of like was a pretty well, a fully rounded view. Um, 
what was striking to me was that there was this there's that 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 newsroom sort of went it both ways. On the one hand, they want their people on Twitter and on social media to help raise the profile of the organization and their work. On the other hand, they offer no help or very little help when people get in, when they get trolled or when they get mobbed. So it's like, we need you to do this for your job, but if you get in trouble, you're sort of on your own. That's exactly right. And I would say it's even worse than that because not only do newsroom managers want their journalists using social media, they want them doing so in a particular way. And that particular way that's in vogue right now is to be a person, uh, yeah. is to present yourself as more than just your job. And that means sharing details about who you are. And the problem with that is newsroom social media policies are completely inconsistent with that goal. Instead, they're very much geared toward doing all they can to prevent audiences from perceiving the news organization itself as being politically compromised or biased. And because these guidelines are all based on how what you share gets perceived rather than on what you share to begin with, then it puts journalists in this incredibly difficult position where they feel compelled to share things about themselves and how they feel about the world on social media. And yet any one of those things can be used as evidence that they are biased and therefore their organization is biased. And that's all the news organization really cares about is those accusations and trying to do what they can to mitigate them. I think I read in, in the intro that that the majority of people you interviewed of the three dozen or so people you interviewed and asked for this for this piece were either women or journalists of color. Is that right? Yes. Why why are those people particularly vulnerable? So there are two reasons for this based on what I've been able to tell from the research that's been done about this. And there's very compelling and consistent research about who gets harassed uh, in the journalism world when it comes to using social media. And I actually haven't done that research. It's been done by other people who um, have been invested in this sort of subfield of journalism studies research for much longer than I have been. Um, and they've consistently found that women journalists and journalists of colors, sorry, journalists of color get harassed much more um, than white journalists and male journalists. And uh, I think that, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know why that is, except to say racism and, and sexism. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm sure that there are more nuanced answers that could be given by the people that have been doing this research for longer. What I can tell you is that um, in addition to getting abuse online more viciously and more often, uh, women journalists and journalists of color um, also get hung out to dry more often because all of this is tied up in the conversation about objectivity within journalism. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that um, within journalism, as I'm sure you know, uh, there's this idea that you shouldn't cover things that you're too closely related to. Um, it really rubs a lot of journalists of color and women journalists the wrong way for good reason, because as we've seen with like Black Lives Matter, for example, you've got black reporters being told, no, you can't cover that because you're too close to the black community and therefore your objectivity is compromised. And so what happens is um, if you are a black journalist and you say Black Lives Matter on Twitter, or even if you don't say anything that that's, that, that is expressing, you know, solidarity with a movement and you just sort of share reporting that you've done 
or reporting that someone else has done, um, then people on Twitter can use just the fact that you're sharing it as evidence that you um, are invested in this cause in some way that a white male reporter wouldn't be. And then that begins this process by which the Twitter mob mobilizes and says, you're... Uh, objectivity is compromised and therefore your organization's objectivity is compromised and therefore you should be fired or pay some sort of uh, professional consequences. And so it's not just that they're getting harassed more often than white men, which they are. Um, It's also that they are more often to face these accusations of bias and then the organization, because of the way these social media policies are implemented, are more likely to penalize these journalists rather than protect them from the harassment. So why is it that you think these news organizations are so spineless when it comes to this? <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's a very good way of phrasing the question. I think that really what it comes down to is they are so convinced that holding on to this traditional notion of objectivity is their best defense against their... Um, diminishing credibility. I I think it's as simple as that. I think that, you know, the journalists that I spoke with who think that objectivity uh, should be replaced with something that is more about transparency or accuracy or commitment to certain values, um, from their perspective, this approach to social media policy uh, is is spineless, as as you said. You know, it it, it is uh, spineless and and it's very self-involved. It's all about the organization rather rather than about the employee. However, you know, and it's not that I spoke to that many people who uh, maintain the management perspective, but I spoke to enough uh, that I feel comfortable saying that what it really comes down to is it's not like they see themselves as being just so terrified of the Twitter mob that they just want to bend over backwards to appease them. It's that they genuinely feel that if journalists were to just be allowed to say whatever they want and express whatever political views they have, then what little trust the public still has in journalism would be entirely lost. Yeah, and also you point out that um, the fact that most of the people in power in these newsrooms are older, usually older, usually white, usually male, also plays into how they respond. Yes. So I would say that that, the answer to that question is a little bit complicated. Um, So... The simple answer is yes, that certainly seems to play into it. It, it. I consistently heard from people that I spoke with pretty much on all ends of the professional spectrum within journalism that if you want to have a social media policy that works for journalists, especially for women journalists and journalists of color, then you need to have that policy get made by women journalists and journalists of color who are actually using social media consistently and have shared have similar experiences while using social media to the journalists that these policies are meant to protect. And that seems very straightforward. I mean, you know, when I was doing these interviews, I felt like I often felt like my job with this report was really just to paraphrase what I was hearing so consistently from so many people. But with that, it was especially true because it was just, it just seems so obvious, you know, just get these people into the same room as the people making these policies and the policy will be better. The reason why I say that the answer to this is a little complicated, though, is that it's not like I only heard objectivity as we know it should be maintained um, by the crusty old white dudes that I interviewed. Um, 
there were actually a handful of women journalists um, who were younger, um, who similarly said, we can't just allow journalists to say whatever they want on Twitter. And it wasn't about their age. It wasn't about their gender. It wasn't about, you know, uh, whether or not they were white or not. It was about who they were covering and where they were based. Uh, so um, to these people that I interviewed that, that you know, sort of maintained that, that you needed to be careful about how you presented yourself to the audience that you were trying to reach were based in very conservative Southern areas. And mm -hmm. so from their perspective, um, having journalists say whatever you want about your political views or anything else is an invitation for people who have uh, opposing political views to say, finally, I know for sure that you are not who you, you know, purported to be. You're not an objective journalist. You're not trying to be neutral. You have, you you, you are invested in, in the opposing ideology. And therefore, now I know for sure that I don't want to follow you. Um, the, the issue there, and I, I'm sorry to make this such a long answer, is that it wasn't necessarily that these people were saying objectivity needs to be maintained so much as they were saying, we kind of need to speak the same language as the people that we're trying to cover. So uh, one of these people said something about how when she arrived in, I believe it was South Carolina, she stopped using the phrase gun control legislation and started using gun rights legislation. And yeah. so, you know, that's not quote unquote objective. It's just speaking in a similar language to the demographic of the audience that you're trying to reach. Um, and so I, I, you know, I don't mean to pick apart one of my interviewees because uh, she was incredibly thoughtful and I'm so appreciative of all these interviewees who give me so much of their time. Um, but I, I do think that's really interesting because it suggests that this isn't really so much about objectivity as much as it is editors and journalists trying to figure out what it is their audiences want from them and then giving those audiences what they want so that they'll trust them. So after talking to all these people, um, do you, is the view that we need to be on Twitter because it helps build our brand. It helps us, um, you know, raise our profile as journalists. It may even help us get jobs down the road, especially if you're young or especially if you're um, a journalist of color. It, do, do you still do you still see the value of Twitter even when you weigh it against all of these problems? I mean, if you were if if a young journalist came up to you and said, "Hey, I, 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 Twitter seems to really be." toxic should i stay on or should i get off what do you tell people yeah so that's a great question i think what i would tell people is it seems like it's a really valuable way to develop your professional career it seems like it's a really great way to interact with other journalists maybe not as such a great way to interact with the public and i kind of feel like that's we i think everyone in journalism kind of knows that but maybe doesn't necessarily talk about that as much as maybe we should you know, there's research that shows that a, a small minority of the public are actually on Twitter, but yeah. a large number of journalists are on Twitter. And so, you know, we, we already know that when journalists are on Twitter, it's not so much that they have, like, democratized the newsmaking process or lowered, you know, uh, r removed the gates from the gatekeeping that they were once doing. It's just another way for journalists to talk to their competitors or their colleagues or whatever about what's going on in the field and, and what they're up to. Uh, and so in that way, I do think that it is very helpful for people to get into this work. And, you know, frankly, I was able to secure a lot of the interviews that I did 
because of Twitter, you know? So it was very helpful for this report. Um, but I think that when it comes to actually interacting with your audiences, then I don't necessarily know if there's nearly as much value in it. And I don't know if I were an editor in a newsroom, I would say to my reporter, you have to be on Twitter so that we can, you know, cultivate your following for whatever it is that you're covering and work that into our overall online audience. I, I just don't necessarily know if um, it's worth the risks. Um, that being said, I don't know if I would frame this as should newsrooms um, encourage or discourage their journalists from being on Twitter so much as they should have, um, I think, larger conversations about what should their approach be to protecting journalists who choose to be on Twitter from online harassment. Yeah, and this the last point you made, which is we have to remember that you know that a very small percentage of the overall population is on Twitter versus a very large percentage of journalists. That's actually a kind of um, reassuring notion when you get into a Twitter war. Yes. Because <laughs> it feels like everybody on planet Earth is watching this and it's actually not the case. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And that, 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 that brings up, and I don't know if you've got into this, but like there is an argument that I hear a lot and I've actually experienced this, including relatively recently. Like, when your your organization or usually usually with us is more of an organization than an individual reporter is being a, is being like really attacked by somebody um, there is a there's there are two poles of thought which one is like ignore this because it'll just go away and if you engage you're just going to encourage it versus like oh no you got to stand up to this person and not and they aren't able they shouldn't be able to say this and some of your interviewees actually talked about this a bit um and it usually was framed as we need to make we need to be confident that our news organization has our back um so how 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 do people kind of like navigate this like giving fuel to it versus standing up and and standing up for your people yeah i don't think that there's a uh, uh i don't think anyone really knows what the right answer is to this question because it seems like it depends so much on the individual instance in which the harassment is unfolding. So, for example, you know, Alex Harris from the Miami Herald, who I interviewed, uh, who talked about um, how she was trying to reach out to Parkland students as the Parkland shooting was unfolding, and how her reaching out to students, that tweet was manipulated and used by white supremacists and spread all throughout Twitter, and it led to just awful, awful, awful harassment of her and her editors at first it, were basically saying like just try to ignore it and well, they were, one of the reasons they said that is that some of those some of that stuff was just outright lies and fabrications they were like making up they were like making her tweets look like they said something they actually didn't say right yes exactly they had taken her tweet that was just asking if students were okay and if they could give if they were okay if they could give her any information so she could report on it and changing it so that as if she were asking for pictures of dead bodies right. or asking what the ethnicities were of the people who had been killed. Right. None I of mean, which is true. No, none of which is true. And so, yeah, so they were trying to spread this, this misinformation about what she was actually asking for. And it, it like totally blew up and eventually her editors and, and she realized that they needed to actually be a little bit more proactive. Um, and I think in hindsight, she was she she said that 
she wished that they had tried to stop this sooner. Um, but I think that what I, I, you know, at the, at the bare minimum, what I heard from people was less about having help knowing when the right time is to engage and not to engage so much as knowing that at a certain point, their news organization, you know, whether it's like some sort of brand account or their editor will jump into the fray and just say, this is unacceptable. Right. Stop, stop, you know, stop harassing this journalist from, from just doing their job. Um, and if you have actual criticisms about the reporting, please reach out to me or whatever, you know, basically trying to divert the harassment from this journalist to someone who is designated and trained to take that harassment on. Yeah. So finally, like, um, you know, reading this, I was, everything that you say, you know, all, all these are good ideas about how newsrooms should handle this, how journalists should navigate this. But part of me is like, sort it's sort of infuriating that, I mean, this has been going on for years and years now. Um, and not much seems to change. What is your sense of like, whether newsrooms are going to get better at dealing with this or are going to, are going to finally institute policies that help or what is your level of optimism? You know, I actually, I, I feel a little bit more optimistic about it than I think I did <laughs> not uh, before I started doing this project, but it's not necessarily because of this project so much as it is just coincidentally while I was gathering data for this, learning more about the rise of unions in journalism. And what I did interview some people who were either affiliated with the unions within their organization or were attempting to unionize within their organization, what I would hear is that they were trying to put into their union contract language, language about social media, you know, language about protections from online harassment so that they would be in a better position um, contractually than they would have been before um, they had unionized. And so I do, you know, I, I feel like this is maybe like a, a strange and maybe surprising answer to you uh, since these two things maybe don't seem like they're uh, so tied up with one another. But I do feel that um, as we see more unionizing happening within journalism, that does make me a bit optimistic actually that the journalists who are leading these union drives uh, are are the people who have been getting this harassment and are aware of just how bad it can be. And so therefore will um, twist the arms of management to actually take this a little bit more seriously than they were before. Jacob, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So Jacob's piece, which is called A Twitter Tightrope Without a Net, is on CGR.org. Um, you can follow all of our coverage of how journalists navigate Twitter and everything else on our website, on our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and on Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.